Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today I'm very excited to have on Katie, or you might know her on Twitter as Dr. Mildred Florsham. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Mildred underscore Florsh, Florsh, F-L-O-R-S-H. So I'm very excited to have her on, and we are going to be talking about the DC Snipers. So how are you doing today, Katie? Doing great. Excited to be here. Awesome. And I am excited to have you on. And so um, I guess the first thing is what made you in the first place kind of wanted to dive into the DC snipers? Because you found so many interesting things that I had no idea about when it comes to the subject. Yeah, I think it's kind of a funny answer. I was on Twitter um, and like just stumbled into parapolitical Twitter, saw everyone doing these threads, this like original research that I thought looked like really fun, looked really cool. And I was moving away from DC. Uh, and that was the time where I thought, you know, I'm just going to give this a try and thought it would be cool to pick something, you know, that happened in DC uh, or, you know, people that grew up in DC or something related to it before I moved away. And so I kind of just at random picked the DC snipers and been on it ever since. Very, very fun. It is fun to do your own original research. And a lot of the times what you figure out when you start to do it is that, no one else really has done it. Sometimes it's intimidating. You're like, oh, this subject's been covered so much. But then when you actually start to dive into it, there's just a plethora of stuff that you haven't seen anybody else mention. So when it comes to the DC snipers, could you tell us just a little bit about the two DC snipers, just kind of like some preliminary information as far as who they are or um, when it comes to Lee Boyd Malvo and John Allen Muhammad? Yeah, um... I'll start with Muhammad. Uh, so he was born John Ellen Williams in New Orleans in 1960. Um, when he graduated high school in 1978, he joined the National Guard. He stayed in it until 85. And it was during that time that he actually married his first wife, Carol, um, and had a, a child with her that um, neither of them are at all included in the in the sort of crime narrative. And then after 1985, he leaves National Guard, um, enlists in the military. He's in the military until 96. Um, then during that time, he marries Mildred. Um, I promise that's not where I got my name. Uh, he marries Mildred uh, and has the three kids that uh, he will ultimately go and chase. Um, so he has those kids with Mildred, opens up uh, an auto repair business in Tacoma, Washington. And then according to Mildred, uh, he's very successful. She said he it brought in um, $100,000 in just two years, but he really wanted to make more. So uh, he opened up a karate school, actually, with a partner. And then um, soon after, just completely abandoned it, left it in the hands of his partner um, and sort of while he's living this entrepreneurial life, he 
starts a relationship uh, with this nurse. It's a seven-year relationship, so it carries all the way through the crimes. Um, then towards uh, the end of the 90s, Mildred files for divorce. Uh, at that point, they're legally separated. Uh, that's when Mohammed goes to uh, Antigua. It's the year 2000 and meets Lee for the first time. Uh, and so when they meet, he's 14 years old. Um, and at this point, he has abducted his three children um, and is living with them in Antigua, uh, you know, before this whole thing with Lee kicks off. And then with Lee, I think, uh, you know, it, it's a really, he had a really awful upbringing. Uh, he was born in 1985 in Kingston, Jamaica, um, basically bounced around within Jamaica and then um, moved to St. Martin. Uh, his dad left him at a very young age. And then his mom left him um, around 10 to go and find uh, work and basically dropped him off with any family that was willing to take him. Um, he went to boarding schools and some families were more excited to have him than others, but experienced quite a lot of um, abuse, physical and emotional abuse. Um, he was very depressed, attempted suicide, um, and was really in a low place uh, until uh, 2000 when he when he met Muhammad. Okay, so one thing that you mentioned there, and that um, I also learned from your Twitter threads and stuff on the issue, is um, you said that uh, Muhammad would have some military service. And so what significance does that bear to the DC sniper case? What exactly was he doing in the military? Yeah. Um, well, he's kind of a problem from the beginning. Uh, I said he was in the national guard, uh, in the final years of his national guard service, he was court-martialed twice, uh, demoted, fined. Um, he ends up hitting an officer, in the head and then finally is released and goes right into the army. Um, so in from 85 to 91, he's, um, you know, on reserve. And then in 91, he serves as an um, army combat engineer. So he's a mechanic and a driver um, ends up going to Germany uh, before the Gulf war. And once he gets to Germany, um, the head of his company says that he looked like a really straight, straight-laced guy. He was very excited to finally have someone that was willing to work hard and, and listen to directions. Um, but there was some real racial tension uh, within the company. And um, Mohammed very quickly kind of exploited that. He was carrying a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X everywhere he went um, and was talking to some of the um, uh, black soldiers about, um, you know, about the white soldiers and about uh, how they've, um, how the white soldiers and their families and their ancestors have, you know, um, you know, committed misdeeds against them and just kind of sowing hate 
And then a, a week before uh, it got pushed, they got pushed to Iraq for the ground phase of the Gulf War. Mohammed took a thermite grenade um, and threw it into a tent holding uh, about 20 of his men. So, I mean, these grenades, they burn really hot. Uh, they can melt steel. It started a huge fire. Uh, all the cots and the backpacks, um, boots, canteens, you name it, all totally destroyed. Uh, and when they called in the investigations division, um, they were able to trace the pin, the grenade pin to Muhammad. And, you know, I think it was kind of a thing where everybody just knew that it was Muhammad, uh, but they didn't have the material evidence to totally prove it. So they sent him home, um, but he's actually promoted. He gets the uh, attains the rank of sergeant, and then receives an honorable discharge, uh, but on the condition of an anonymity in '94, and that was from Fort Lewis. But that actually didn't end his association with the military. He joined the National Guard uh, in Oregon in '95. Uh, and then left after a year with an honorable discharge. So um, really quite a long storied history marked with a lot of uh, misdeeds and I guess just sort of causing trouble as he went. Absolutely. And I think that everybody in, you know, the circles that we travel in who's interested in parapolitics always sees something fishy about somebody who, um, either is, you know, just a giant failure or causes as many problems as Muhammad did, but they somehow managed to keep climbing their way up the rank. There's something very right. fishy about that. And that's kind of a recurrent theme through, uh, you know, the stories of multiple different people. So that's all very, very interesting. And so what would Muhammad get into in his period after being in the military? Where does he kind of go from, you know, this troubled military career? Yeah. Um, well, so he came back uh, and, you know, finished out, I guess, finished out his uh, marriage with, um, with his wife, Mildred. Uh, once he got to Antigua with his kids, he basically um, set up shop doing uh, like fake identification documents for people in Antigua that wanted to get back to the United States. I will say uh, between being discharged and coming down to Antigua, uh, he had multiple run-ins with the law, um, mainly, which is mainly concerning because Mildred had his name on a list. She had the um, restraining order against him. He had like a pretty significant record at that point, uh, just with abuse and, um, you know, taking his kids, things like that. So um, he comes down to Antigua uh, and oddly enough has a passport from the year 2000 even though the Antigua Immigration Office only um, claims that he entered the country as early as 2001. Um, 
So anyways, he enters the country and starts up this uh, fake identification business. He makes passports, birth certificates, and driver's licenses, uh, and uh, charges quite a bit for them. So uh, Lee's mom, for example, Una, she had to pay $3,500 for her package. So I'm not sure if that includes all of the documents, but certainly... For someone in Antigua um, that would be looking for these, it's quite a lot of money. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much what he was up to. He just wanted to lay low, um, keep his kids there, and make money. And so was he getting into legal trouble during this time, or is this kind of just stuff that's you know reflecting badly as far as you know this kind of custody struggle that's going on and stuff? Um, there was some legal trouble. Yes. Um, there was, well, like I said, just all of the, he had all of the, um, like spousal abuse and things like that came up on his record. Um, he also had, I mean, it's, it's minor, but it just does, it just does prove that they knew where he was. He had quite a few, um, issues with like driver's licenses, license plates, getting, um, you know, pulled over, ticketed, put in the system. So it was kind of racking up quite a lot of, um, of offenses that in that way. Okay. Interesting. And so you discussed that he's got this, you know, fake identification kind of racket that he's running. And so what was Muhammad's financial situation like? I mean, he had the, uh, auto repair shop prior to this. I mean, is, is he raking it in hand over fist? Is he struggling? Is he, you know, just kind of like your average middle-class kind of guy? Yeah. So, uh, I do know that the courts determined that he could pay almost 900 a month in child support. So at that point, his income much must've been, pretty big. Uh, but, you know, the automobile uh, repair shop at that point had gone under. Uh, he walked away from his karate uh, dojo aspirations. Um, so he might have had money kind of saved up. But um, after he met Lee, the, the financing thing gets pretty sketchy. So Apparently, there was a police raid on Muhammad's house in Antigua because uh, Muhammad was detained at the U.S. border during one of his trips. So he would, what he would do is he would go on the plane or on a boat with the people that he's trying to get across the border and then come back, uh, you know, once they were safely across. So one trip, he, he was coming back, he got detained, um, they raided the house, and according to Lee's diary, he says that they took at least $160,000 from Muhammad's house. So he's raking it in. I, I don't know if, to me, I feel like it's a lot of money just for fabricating documents, but, you know, who knows? Um, but then going forward, he doesn't hold down any kind of job. So um, they people are seeing him behaving in ways that would suggest he has a ton of money. So they're living in a homeless shelter at, at one point. 
and uh, the people that are operating the homeless shelter keep getting phone calls from Muhammad's travel agent. Uh, the travel agent is calling about Muhammad's ski trips. He apparently wants to go to Denver. He wants to go to Salt Lake City. Um, all different kinds of vacations that uh, Muhammad is is planning with, you know, I have no idea what money. Um, he would walk around the area around the homeless shelter, go to like cafes and just flash wads of cash. Um, these are like direct quotes from people that lived in the community. Um, they would do some petty theft just to make some money, but there's just no way that um, the amount of theft and, and the time that they were doing it would hold a candle to the amount of money he would need to maintain that lifestyle. Very interesting. Okay. And so this is something that you touched on a little bit, but just to kind of, you know, uh, explain this a little bit more in depth for the listeners. So what was the relationship like between, you know, Muhammad and um, who would be his ex-wife and, and his children? Cause this is you know, a very important part of Muhammad's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, they really paint him as a devoted father from day one. Um, he apparently was obsessed with his kid. Well, I mean, it's obvious he was obsessed with his kids, but you know, from the day they were born, uh, just really devoted to them. Uh, but the interesting thing is, again, I rarely see anything mentioned about the kid from the first marriage. I guess probably just wants to stay out of it as much as possible. Um, but yes, a, I guess a good relationship with the kids. I never hear about him abusing them or anything. Mildred was terrified of him. Um, she like I said, made police reports. He was violent. He was emotionally and verbally abusive. Um, she knew that he was cheating. He spent a ton of time at this mistress's house. Um, and at one, at some point just felt uh, like really quite embarrassed. Her self-esteem was really low. She claims that he, she claims that he was able to tap her phone and listen to her conversations, but you know, there's no way to prove that that's that that actually happened. Um, but Mildred is, you know, she's not a perfect picture either. She had some really bizarre behavior towards Muhammad. Um, her last name was Williams. Uh, did not become Muhammad until after the divorce, which was finalized in 2000 at the earliest. So. This is after she receives a permanent restraining order against him and they're divorced. She decides she wants to become Mildred Muhammad. Um, and you know she moves to Washington, D.C. with the kids, allegedly to get away from Muhammad. And you know, I'm sure that it was a driving factor, but she also was going to start a new job with uh, John Ashcroft, attorney general <laughs> under the Bush admin. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so Ashcroft was actually uh, the man that was, you know, 90% responsible for 
bringing Lee to trial in Virginia because it would allow them to give him the death penalty, even though most of his killings were not in Virginia. So the fact, and Mildred has no prior work experience, <laughs> none. And what was Mildred <laughs> like, doing for John Ashcroft? I have no clue. I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, Secretary that is... <laughs> that's what i was thinking that's that's crazy <laughs> um yeah that's a uh, yeah and what you said about you know ashcroft being responsible largely for the trial being moved uh to virginia for for malvo that that just adds a whole other layer to the uh strangeness the high strangeness there yeah. okay and so we now know a little bit about Muhammad and his background and the military, this dispute going on between him and Mildred, his relationship to his kids during his time in the military. He's kind of uh, creating tension inside of um, inside there. And so how would he come into contact with Malvo, who's kind of this down and out guy who comes from a hard bringing hard upbringing how would they come to know one another yeah so story goes malvo walked into an internet cafe one day and saw muhammad playing with his kids um they were playing a flight simulator uh one of them was hungry and started kind of yelling and crying and um instead of beating his kids like lee's mom would have done uh, Muhammad went and uh, went across the street and got a cinnamon bun for his kid. And Lee was just really touched by that. Um, but they didn't speak or anything. He just kind of saw him. And then later, um, Mildred is, or not Mildred, excuse me, Lee's mom, Una, wants uh, documents to get out of Antigua to the United States. And she hears at the, um, at the, uh, one of the Antiguan like government buildings, she heard someone talking about a, a guy that can get you the documents you need. Uh, and it just so happened to be Muhammad. So when they went to see him, Lee recognized him right away. Um, they visited him daily for a week while he was making these documents. And then, um, Una leaves. So Lee's mom leaves for the U.S. As far as I know, they, they weren't in touch for a few months, or at least not in close contact. Lee gets really sick. He's in bed and like can barely get up. And uh, according to him, Muhammad just, just so happens to check in on Lee and finds the door open. So he walks in. He brings Lee to his home, he takes care of him. Um, from there, it's just a really, really strong relationship between the two. Lee kind of finds him to be the father figure or the parent even that, that he was missing. Um, and But although like Una really obviously was grateful to Muhammad for getting him these documents, but she really didn't trust him. She actually heard that before Lee, Muhammad was attempting to groom another boy in the neighborhood. 
Um, and at times, Muhammad would tell people that he was a trained government operative and that the reason he was recruited was for his ability to infiltrate youth culture. So I think that Muhammad was kind of seen in the neighborhood as this guy that really likes kids. Um, and it was like a sort of a natural progression of him picking up Lee, bringing him into his home. And then that the bond was really strong, really quickly. And so was this relationship between the two, was this mainly kind of like, um, you know, you mentioned kind of like a missing father figure or something like that, but was there a sexual dynamic to this? I know that that's something that some people have said that was going on, or is there really no evidence to bear that out? Yeah, I, there's no evidence. I So Malvo did come out and say, Muhammad sexually abused him um, from the moment that he met him through the time that he was arrested. Um, but since that, since that confession is so far separated from, you know, the actual arrest, I, I don't really know how much weight we can give it. He's been confessing to a lot of things, a lot of murders, a lot of robberies, um, so, you know, I'm not sure that some of those admissions are entirely true or entirely his own, but it could be possible. Okay. And so how would their relationship kind of go from, you know, we have Muhammad who is kind of um, grooming Malvo in a sort of way. There's this strange relationship and they're growing really close to one another how would that eventually turn into them becoming accomplices or well, uh, co-partners in crime, I should say, in the murder of, you know, 17 people and the, the wounding of, of 10 other people? How do they go from, you know, kind of the start of their relationship eventually to, to that kind of climax? Yeah, I mean, Muhammad had it. I don't think it was all that difficult for him to make this happen. Um, after he takes care of Lee when he's sick, uh, Lee writes in his diary that Muhammad began calling him son. It's like, you know, a few weeks after he brings him home, uh, going around the neighborhood and introducing him as his son. Uh, and then within a few weeks, Lee had taken over this fabrication business while Muhammad was detained at the U.S. border. So, um, he had taught Lee how to do it. And then, you know, all of a sudden Lee's kind of tied up in this crime. Um, and then Muhammad just became more and more strict, always kind of under the guise of helping Lee reach his highest potential. Um, he was just slowly pushed to these more and more aggressive levels. Um, it would start with something like a, a really strict workout routine um, and then, and then Muhammad would go to the next level, which would be, you know, as extreme as nine hours, they would do nine hours at the gun range, um, one four hour session, one five hour session at the gun range until Lee kind of lost sight of what was actually normal. And then before they actually started 
the killings, um, Muhammad made Lee do a blood oath with him. So they, uh, you know, cut their fingers, shared their blood, and then they put their blood onto a dollar bill, uh, cut the dollar bill in half, and each person carried a half of the bill, you know, with their mixed blood. Um, and then it, it, it really ramped up. He, he called Lee um, an instrument. He would tell him what to eat, when to eat, which was very little, um, what to listen to, what to watch, what to wear, just like full, full control. Uh, and then, you know, eventually Lee just couldn't say no. Uh, you know, when he was asked to, to kill someone for the very first time. Interesting. And we'll delve into some more, you know, deeper into some of that, but let's go ahead and what was kind of, you know, I, I guess a summary, cause we'll dive into some of the, you know, specific, um, attacks, especially some of the victims, because some of the victims are interesting in their own right. Um, but what would these attacks look like that, that they would perpetrate? The first few uh, were meant to prepare Lee. So he would make him stalk people. Uh, one was like stalking a man along his um, typical like golf course walk in the morning. Um, you know, he would send him out and say, don't come home until you've accomplished this deed of, you know, killing someone. So send him out, make him uh, case something uh, and kind of learn how to identify a target. Uh, and then once Lee was comfortable, displayed the baseline skills needed, uh, they bought the Chevy Caprice, which was actually an old cop car. Uh, modify the back seat so Muhammad could crawl into the trunk from the inside and then um, carved a hole in the trunk just big enough for the sniper to shoot through. And then it had a small gap between the, you know, the, the trunk couldn't quite close all the way just so that you could see what was going on. And I guess this is modeled after uh firing platform that was invented by the IRA. Very interesting. Um, yeah. I, makes you wonder where he learned that. I mean, I guess he did have, uh, Muhammad did have that military experience, but can you tell us about, you know, um, as far as the attacks go, there was kind of some phases that Muhammad had concocted, uh, three to be exact. What were the three phases of these attacks supposed to look like? Yeah, well, first, I want to say Lee, Lee did not know about any of these three phases until the night before they began. So phase one uh, he wanted to kill 100 to 200 people throughout D.C., Maryland, Virginia over the course of a month. He said that the minimum would be five, five people a day. And then phase two, I guess just a heads up, is pretty gross. Um, 
their plan was to kill a police officer in Baltimore, and then they wanted to decapitate him publicly. Uh, they said they wanted to do it in a brutal manner. Uh, then they were going to stake out his funeral. Um, and then, you know, once everybody gets to the funeral of this cop, which presumably would be many more cops and, you know, city workers, government officials, they would plant explosives. Uh, and Muhammad said specifically he wanted to set the explosives with nails and ball bearings so that they're as destructive as possible. Um, for phase two, they actually had a, uh, guns, ammo, and explosives stored in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. There's some kind of stock pile somewhere. I'm not sure if that was in, a, in someone's house or storage unit or what. Um, then phase three, after the thing with the cop was finished, they wanted to demand $10 million from the government to stop the killings. It was going to be an ultimatum. You know, we'll keep killing if you don't give us this amount of money. And then uh, they wanted to use that money to train and school uh, young black kids. So it's basically like a mega cult or like a compound maybe. He told Lee, uh, he said, we need the resources and the time to deprogram a generation, 70 boys and 70 girls, a super generation trained and sent into the different parts of the world to bring about a just system. And uh, he said that they absolutely had to start with the children. <laughs> Certainly a lofty plan <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, and the thing about the wanting to start the training facility for uh, children kind of just makes my head spin a little bit. There's so many uh, places that one's mind can go when, when you think of that. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, all the susness around like gifted children. I'm thinking all, all kinds of crazy stuff. So I guess my question is, do you think that, Muhammad actually believed that this these phases could be accomplished and do you think he really believed that there was going to be this training facility in Canada or is this like a story that's being you know told told to us just because this whole thing is a uh, so wild yeah yeah so McGowan has this um, has this theory that Muhammad changed his last name to Muhammad uh, just in time for this entire string of shootings and this whole plan to look like uh, an act of terrorism, and you know that that would play nicely for a nation that maybe is their fear of uh, domestic terrorism is maybe starting to relax a little bit. It's been long enough post nine 11. Um, they are, you know, Bush is looking for more funding for the war on terror. Uh, so I think like the, the last name I buy. And I think that this 
Canada thing is sort of a sim like it sort of a, serves a similar purpose, just to make them look really scary and um, you know sensationalize the crimes as much as possible, uh, just keep people really scared for as long as possible. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's just my guess, but of course there's no way to really know. Yeah. But that, that, that does make intuitive sense. And, um, yeah, it's just such a interesting thing. And so I'm glad to get your perspective on that. And so I guess next we can get into some of the, um, victims of these attacks and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that kind of goes into the attacks themselves, because there's a lot of interesting stuff that you dug up there. And so could you tell us about Paul LaRuffa and uh, how his testimony, you know, differs from that of the other victims of the DC snipers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Paul LaRuffa's testimony, uh, it's, it's, does it sound it really sounds nothing like the DC snipers? So um he has an Italian restaurant in Maryland. Um he says that he was closing up for the evening uh and he went to his car, sat down, and um there was a car in the parking lot next to him. Um all of a sudden he was shot six times. Uh but unlike these drive-by shootings that were experienced by the dozens of other victims, he says that they, he believes he was stalked for at least three days before this happened. Um, and then once they shot him, they took his laptop and his briefcase. Um, and, you know, I guess it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I, I can't imagine what they would want with a, a laptop and a briefcase. They actually had their own laptop. Uh, they went so far as to install solar panels on the top of the Caprice to power their own laptop so that they would know where they were going because neither of them had ever even been to DC, Maryland, Virginia. Um, so why they would want it is beyond me. Um, and obviously shooting just looks completely different. Uh, and then you look into uh, LaRufa's resume and of course he's a consultant. He was a consultant for the Pentagon. Um, he would help uh, measure the effectiveness of enlistment bonuses. So, you know, how much money do we really need to pay to get someone to, to uh, join the military? Uh, and, you know, I don't, this is maybe also kind of a, this is more of a vibes based, uh, conclusion, but I read somewhere that the, uh, the incidents of, uh, cocaine dealing within Italian restaurants in the Maryland area, uh, during this point in time was incredibly high, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if it was some kind of drug thing or maybe uh, he had some kind of sensitive information 
um, what the deal was with the, with the laptop and the, and the briefcase, but, you know, also just the fact that he's in Maryland at that time. Uh, if you look at the map, it would really require the snipers to go pretty far out of their way just to go and shoot a guy that in the hand, <laughs> you know, a guy in a parking lot of an Italian restaurant. Yeah, that is uh, all very strange. Um, and yeah, there is stuff that would, you know, I mean, we can't know with certainty, perhaps, but um, stuff that is kind of indicative that this was uh, planned in some sort of way and that this wasn't as uh, kind of random as many of the other attacks. Uh, kind of what it reminds me of is I did an episode on the uh, some episodes on the Dutro affair um, with uh uh, somebody not too long ago, and they talked about the Brabant killings, which were these shootings that were happening in Belgium and had some connections to some Gladio type stuff. And they were supposed to be these like random shootings and stuff. And one of the people who was shot in one of these was this guy who had a dirt, um, like some sexual blackmail on a politician and was trying to get money out of him. And then he happens to get shot in a random, you know, shoot a uh, supermarket shooting. <laughs> Uh, you know, so it's kind right, of like right. reminiscent of that where there's just, you know, uh, what are the odds? So that that's very interesting. And another person who's interesting um, is Linda Franklin. And what can we learn about the, you know, uh, the attacks and what what kind of uh, just just tell us about Linda Franklin, because it's very interesting. Yeah, she's also pretty interesting. She um, she had been. In she was a, an intelligence operations specialist for three and a half years, uh, and this the cyber division of the FBI uh, was very very recently formed. She was an inaugural member of it. Um, what happened was she was at Home Depot, um, walking through the parking lot, and uh, then a, a car drove by and and shot and killed her. And the police received a tip very quickly from a witness, um, his name's Matthew Dowdy. And he told the cops that he saw um, a white or a cream color van um, shoot Linda Franklin. He said that the, there was one shooter. Uh, he, was, he had dark hair. He had a mustache. Uh, the police did a very quick search and they say they found nothing. And then uh, they basically accused him of uh, upholding the case because like by lying or sending in a false tip. Uh, and what actually happened was uh, there was a, a homeless woman outside of the Home Depot this was a, a woman that Dowdy, like whenever he would come, he would say hello to her. Uh, so they were friendly and she had seen this van go by, um, saw the shooter, but what just really didn't want to go to the police. Um, so yeah, he took, I guess he sort of took the fall. Um, the police brought him to court, fined him a thousand dollars and then, uh, and then let him go. And then, um, you know, now he's actually 
in prison for uh, this rape and murder conviction, which the evidence and um, the way that the trial went down is uh, just, just really clear that it was, they really wanted him in jail. Um, they basically, there's a, a body near a utility box, which is near kind of a, one of those like motel type hotels. And um, Dowdy would go over there and uh, have a cigarette most nights and lean up against the utility box. Um, they saw a his shoe print and some of his fingerprints on the utility box. And that is 100% all of the... Um, all of the evidence that they used to get him in jail. Uh, he has a, a list of witnesses. Uh, he says he, he might actually know the perpetrator. Uh, and he's requested, a, and he requested an investigator multiple times when the, when the, case, when the um, case was being heard, but the court denied it every single time. Um, so one other thing to note um, while, while the blue caprice was going around and killing people, the police were saying that there might actually be killers that were driving around in a white van. Um, There's kind of conflicting. When you see it reported, it's either reported as, uh, you know, everything was happening so fast, we just got really confused. Or... Um, you know, it's, you know, we just flat out got it wrong. We really thought it was the white van and then it wasn't. Uh, but either way, different cops in different places, like uh, Charles Moose in Maryland, uh, the way that he treated it really makes me think that the white van wasn't ever, they knew that it wasn't the DC snipers to begin with. Um, perhaps people that were shooting and killing victims, but weren't Muhammad and weren't Lee. Anyways, Linda Franklin's uh, case, I think, is uh, the one that points to this issue the strongest. Just that, um, you know, maybe the report of the white van was actually correct. And, you know, if so, why were they so worried about actually investigating it? 